Yo, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades, happy Monday. Though no such thing truly exists. I am doing a special delve into the catacon today, that which restrains, <clears throat> that which holds back the Antichrist. And joining me is my friend Joshua Charles, a Catholic convert, a former White House speechwriter, number one New York Times bestselling author. That sounds fancy. <laughs> Historian and classical pianist, that is pianist. Don't That's right. It's Joshua right. T. Falls. How, how are you, bro? How are you? Good. Thank you. Honored to be here. And uh, the, I've had uh, quite a few jokes sent my way because of that last item, you know, over the years. So, yeah. <laughs> Mostly from my guy friends. <laughs> of course. The classical pianist. The first one we've had on Rules for Retrograde. I'm, <laughs> I'm honored to have you, man. I mean, look, we, we've talked a lot behind the scenes over the last two to three years about various projects of ours, but especially on this, uh, what is it, a bet noir of yours, the the catacon. It's a scriptural point. I, I'm going to tell parish orphans and retrogrades out there just in the most introductory terms possible. The catacon is that which withholds, it's a Greek term, uh, meaning perhaps the one who withholds, a biblical concept which is subsequently developed into a notion of Political philosophy has something to do with Christendom, and and Josh, you're going to tell us what today. The term is founded in two in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses six through seven, in a specifically eschatological context. Christians must not behave as if the day of the Lord would happen tomorrow. Why not? Because uh, the son of perdition, the Antichrist of First and Second John, must be revealed before. That happens. That comes to pass. Paul the Apostle then adds that the revelation of the Antichrist is conditional upon the removal of, quote, something or someone that restrains him and prevents him from being fully manifested. So that's what we're going to deal with today. Josh, thanks for being with me. Uh, This has been a long time coming. Yeah, no, I I, uh, appreciate a lot of your commentary. Uh, Like most of your friends, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on enough. And and like you, I'm uh, I'm very ecumenical in the proper sense of the term with fellow Catholics. Uh, uh, we're in a very uh, confusing time, and I don't presume to tell people, you know, this is exactly what's happening. My interest is more uh, in terms of providing a typological, biblical, patristic framework for potentially understanding what's happening, but also it's related just to the perennial mystery of the church, perennial mystery of Christ, and uh, so that's, that's my goal. So, well, if you were here in person sitting next to me at the desk, I would uh, begin throwing things at you and attacking you, clawing, biting, because you insinuated strongly, Joshua, that you didn't agree with everything I had to say. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. That's what you do. The way one I'm insinuating, I'm saying, I'm saying. So, <laughs> well, I would, I would, I would claw oh, your eyes. We're, we're 95% agreed, I think. So, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, that's the way. Maybe 90, but. <laughs> Ooh, that's getting getting my clawing nails ready. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like that's kind of, that's what Catholics do, right? They in the, in the midst of the most ambiguity and what ought to uh, be the conditions for the possibility of interpretive leeway on probably in in you know over two millennia of Catholic life, there there ought to be the most leeway we afford one another. Catholics, and they're usually not the smartest ones, but the ones on social media anyway, are, are like, I'm exactly here. And if you're not exactly here with me, 
then you're a heretic and a you know defiler a base defiler that's just that's just not what what i do that's not what you do and um i was just reading saint basil the great yesterday during the arian crisis and he was talking about how because of the chaos in the church every private individual was kind of setting themselves up as the norm of the faith and right. it's you know it's a it's a, a term i coined a number of years ago one niner it refers to ecclesiastes one nine nothing new under the sun uh it, it was it could have been said today the same and i think it applies to some on the left and some on the right i hate those terms applying to the church but for lack of a better one uh in the church so uh yeah it's uh that's not what i'm interested in doing so okay so first off let's say this um well, I want, I want to remind people out there to like and subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Rumble because we're playing in another Bad Kitty sandbox. We could be gone virtually at any time. So subscribe to Timothy Gordon on Rumble. But make sure, as long as we're in this pissy sandbox, that you like and subscribe to this video. Also, if you're a young single dude anywhere between the ages of 20 and 40, check out www.return.us that is r-e-t-v-r-n.us man we are making some really great matches that's the matchmaking site i'm part of that's the way to strike back against the um the madness in the episcopate is just have a have a good big family where you the man are the patriarch we have so many um uh, pretty young virgins and low body count uh ladies there that it is just staggering we actually need more men go to uh, www.return.us today and of course what i'm always advocating is the principle that that is absolutely a scenic one on for household patriarchy subsidiarity you can't have subsidiary you can't have a patriarchy with a big state and you, you need subsidiarity and <clears throat> That means that you have to be in a real republic. The real republic can't be a continent-sized leviathan. It's your state, your actual true state. That's why you should get to the blood-red swath of states between Texas and Florida today. I moved to Mississippi when I moved out of California. Go to realestateforlife.org today. That's realestateforlife.org and get to one of the good blood-red states. All right, Joshua. Let's so let's talk, man. What what is the catacomb, and who is it? Uh, do, you, do you think it's Benedict the Sixteenth? I don't think you think it is. No, no. Um, well, I'll give my well, like you, I went to law school, and my favorite legal opinions were the ones where the judge actually stated their conclusion at the front and then unpacked it for you instead of a long meandering path to finally the conclusion. So I'll say it up front. I think the catacomb it's multivalent. It I think it includes a number of things. But preeminently, I think it's Christendom. Primarily, the it's somehow related to the office of the papacy, I believe. And there's also a liturgical Eucharistic element. So I want to kind of unpack all those, but all those could really fit into just Christendom. Um, and so that that's the conclusion. And but it's very very interesting um, the details that kind of emerge from a, a close study of it. I gave a lecture last September where I proposed a hermeneutic that I haven't really seen before of how to read uh, the Catacon and, and how this particular pattern, I believe, shows up in other parts of scripture that reveal further details about the Catacon. So 
the pattern was restrain, release, return. Restrain refers to our Lord binding Satan uh, with his cross and the resurrection, which the fathers are unanimous that that is what the cross did. Uh, release refers to the brief release of Satan sometime toward the end times. And just to be clear for the sake of this conversation, uh, we are, we've been in the end times since Christ came. But when I say end times, I mean uh, particularly with respect to Antichrist and the times preceding that, immediately preceding that. And then the third one, return, just refer, returns to our Lord, uh, refers to our Lord's return. So restrain, release, return. I believe you see that pattern in 2 Thessalonians 2, which is where the term catacomb is actually mentioned. But you also see it in places like Christ's parables. You see it in Apocalypse 20, I think very, very clearly. And I would argue you see it in places like Daniel as well. And so um, uh, if I would just start with in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul doesn't call Antichrist Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness. Okay. And then he earlier refers to the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity. And so he says that this catacomb is restraining both. Now, the catacomb, it's, it's, it's used in two ways by Paul. One is as a, as a neuter it, and the other as a individual he. So it, it's, whatever the catacomb is, it must include a neuter it and an individual he. Um, so that automatically kind of restricts uh, possibilities there. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, if Antichrist and the mystery of lawlessness, their, their lawlessness, that, that which restrains them and the coming of them uh, must be a source of lawfulness. And what is the church traditionally taught are the sources of lawfulness that God has ordained in the world? Well, it's the sacred hierarchy, the priestly hierarchy, the spiritual power. And the temporal hierarchy, meaning just lay rulers, Romans 13, you know, those who hold the temporal sword to exact justice. Those are the God-ordained sources of lawfulness in the world. And so I believe that Catacon is in very much related to both of those. And um, now the fathers, not unanimously, but many of them believe that the Catacon was somehow related to the Roman Empire. Now, where do they get this from? They get this from Daniel. Uh, the short version, I believe it's Daniel 7. The short version is Daniel has this vision of four beasts. And the fourth beast is generally considered to be the Roman Empire. I, well, unanimously, I think, in the fathers. Yeah. And it, sa it says that out of this beast, 10 horns will come, which are 10 kingdoms. And an 11th little horn, which is interpreted as Antichrist, will come. And he'll subdue three of those kings. And then the other seven will submit to him. So the fathers fairly consistently believed that these 10 horns would be successor kingdoms of the Roman Empire and that Antichrist would arise from among those. In fact, St. Hippolytus of Rome in the, in the 200s, the third century, he explicitly says there'll be 10 democracies, which is, is very interesting in light of, uh, you know, kind of we've had Christendom and then followed by so-called democracies. <laughs> so, um, so that is where the fathers are getting this idea that the Roman Empire is somehow involved in this cataconic restraint on the coming of, of the Antichrist. Now, there's an obvious question, and St. Thomas Aquinas answers it, or asks it, rather, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians 2. He basically says, well, the Roman Empire is gone, so where is Antichrist? Well, and this is where St. Thomas adds something very, very interesting. He refers to Sermon 82 of St. Pope Leo the Great. And in that sermon, St. Pope Leo the Great basically argues 
it was on June 29th, which is the feast of St. Peter and Paul. It was the feast of St. Peter and Paul in the 400s. And it's the same, it's the feast of St. Peter and Paul today. So remarkable continuity there. He basically also, said, June 29th is the date that, uh, according to Malachi Martin, yes, uh, consecration to Satan was done inside the Vatican. Yep, exactly. Go for that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'm open minded about it. I mean, it's, I, you know, I know in general, when I quote people or things, I'm interested in the truth of what they're saying and not all the personal qualities that may make that person problematic in one way or another. So, when it comes to Malachi Martin, regardless of some of his personal qualities or beliefs, I think much of what he has said is undoubtedly becoming seemingly more relevant by the day. Um, he's even made some very interesting comments about Fatima, Ukraine, Kiev, Russia, Moscow. I mean, it's very, very, he added, he added that stuff into the mix in 1996. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm open to what Malachi Martin says, but yes, you're right. Same feast day. So St. Pope Leo the Great says that as pagan Rome was founded on an act of fratricide, Remus killing Romulus, Mm-hmm. That Rome was refounded by the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, and uh, quite the opposite of fratricide. It was out of fraternal love, not only for each other but for our Lord, and mm-hmm. and that this essentially made the temporal empire of Rome into a spiritual empire of Rome, and that therefore the restrainer was in some sense Christendom. And so when Paul in Second Thessalonians two he talks about this great apostasy from this restrainer. Uh, St. Thomas says in his commentary in 2 Thessalonians that this is nothing other than a rebellion against the Catholic faith of the Roman church. And so that's where I think, and then the Card- Henry Cardinal Manning talks about this a lot. He has some amazing books from 1861, 1862 called The Present Crisis of the Holy See. And then he has another work called The Temporal Power of the Vicar of Christ. And that kind of combines multiple lectures into one and he updated it. It's very, very remarkable. And he basically takes this thesis and runs with it says there's something preeminent about the papacy that's involved in the catacomb and holding back Antichrist. Um, and so Cardinal Manning actually said that, and I agree with him, by the way, that when temporal powers begin to defect from the church, that is the beginning of the age of Antichrist. And Antichrist himself will, will bring that to a climax. So that's the overview. <laughs> Isn't it a bit? Okay, so I mean, good, good overview. That, that was well done. Doing a good overview is difficult to do. But isn't it a bit uninteresting to say the catacon is the church or the pontificate? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but like it doesn't put too fine. A, isn't this kind of what people are thinking? Like, oh, it's it's the church or a person. Because, I mean, that's the only way it could be a, a he and an it at the same time. And technically, it can't be a he and an it unless it's like the Pope representing the church. Isn't it kind of obvious? Or, or I don't know. I, I don't think it's obvious through time. I think it's something that is perhaps very much clarifying now. Where it gets even more interesting, I think, is when you add in uh, the typological elements of the passion of the church and then the Eucharistic elements. So let me go over the restraining release return pattern in a few places because I think it adds uh, credence to this. Essentially, now, the church where does that come from. Where does restrain release? That's that's the hermeneutic I propose for better understanding the catacomb and its nature. Uh, from where, where where's what's your? You just you you based see, on my research. Yeah, yeah. yeah you abstract it. You've yeah. abstracted it from these sources, and you're gonna you're kind of putting the conclusion up front. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So in 2 Thessalonians 2, you restrain, you see the mystery of iniquity and the coming of Antichrist restrained, okay? Release, 
It also talks about once the catacomb is moved out of the way, is moved from within the midst, Antichrist arrives. So that's the release of, of Satan. And then it talks about Christ returning, the return. Now, if we go to Apocalypse 20, you see the exact same pattern. Apocalypse 20 begins with an angel uh, bounding the great dragon and throwing him into a pit. Not all the fathers interpreted this particular chapter for that angel to be referring to Christ bounding Satan, but all the fathers, when they talk about the cross and the passion, they say it bound Satan. So I'm kind of synthesizing those views and including the commentaries that many of the fathers have where they do, in fact, interpret it as Christ at the cross bounding Satan. Then next around verse four in Apocalypse 20, you have the setting up of thrones, uh, cathedra. And this is interpreted by St. Augustine, among others, as the age of the church. Christ told the apostles that he would establish them on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as, as these thrones are set up, this is the setting up of the church all over the world. Now, what's interesting is during this age of the church, uh, it says that uh, believers will still be resisting the mark of the beast and from worshiping his image. Because the beast uh, ultimately represents an antichristic system of the world. And it, it goes back to the, the mark of Cain when he was given a mark for, for murder and whatnot. And so to receive the mark of the beast is really to engage in a mortal sin of some kind or another. And so, um, so the saints are making these choices all throughout the age of the church. And Apocalypse says that they will reign with Christ. Those who resisted the beast and worshiping his images will reign with Christ. That's the communion of the saints. But then at uh, verse 7, I believe, it says that the dragon will be briefly unleashed, okay? And that this is when Antichrist, the false prophet, and then Christ returns. So again, you see that same pattern of restrain, release, return. Mm -hmm. You also see it in the parables of our Lord. He talks about apostasy. Uh, one of the things he mentions is that uh, he talks about the strong man. If you want to plunder his goods, first you bind him, and then you plunder his goods, but then he also talks about the strong man coming back with seven other demons and that he's worse off than before. And St. Peter describes personal apostasy in the exact same way. Uh, a, uh, a pagan who's never known Christ is in a far better situation than a Christian who once knew him and rejects him. Uh, and in fact, I think it's Hebrews says it would have been better if he had never known the truth, something to that effect. Uh, same thing with Judas. It would have been better if he had never been born. Um, and so apostasy is infinitely worse than, you know, a more banal, just unbelief or lack of knowledge of Jesus as the Christ. So you see that pattern there. Um, and then in Daniel, it's very interesting. In Daniel 2, uh, the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, you have this, the statue. It starts with the golden head, and it goes through all the various parts of the statue. And then you arrive at the feet, which are iron, partly iron, partly clay, which all the fathers, basically all the fathers interpret as the Roman Empire. And it's during this time that Daniel 2 says that the God of heaven will establish an eternal kingdom. And it says a, a stone, it's not an, it's not an accident that our Lord called Peter stone from Simon to Peter. A stone hits the base of that statue and, and destroys all of those kingdoms, those pre-incarnation pagan kingdoms. And it grows into a great mountain, which is universally uh, interpreted by the fathers as the church. So that's the beginning of the church. Now what happens in Daniel 12? In Daniel 12, around verse 7, I think it is. It's for, I'm doing it from memory. Um, this is explicitly about the end times. And Daniel asks the angel, when will all this be accomplished? And the angel says to Daniel, when the power of the holy people shall be uh, destroyed. 
which is very interesting because in Daniel 2, when the church is established, it says its sovereignty and authority will never be passed to another. Its sovereignty and authority will be maintained. But in Daniel 12, it says when the power of the holy people is shattered. So there's something about the power of the holy people that I believe is involved in the catacomb no longer restraining the coming of Antichrist. So that would be another element. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've, I've studied a, a, lots and lots of philosophy. It's, it's mo mostly Aristotle and Thomas, but lots of wacky continental philosophy. The best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the best. But it, it's funny when I turn to um, Thomas's commentaries on theological matters, strictly theological matters, or I, I look sort of briefly into the fathers or some some theological i've never studied theology i've studied lots and lots of philosophy you know, lots and lots of degrees in it for a guy like me uh and people out there that don't have a degree in either philosophy or theology that you might not understand this distinction is both an intellectual way to parse and a and a temperamental way to parse human beings i you know let let me talk about let me talk aristotle's physics metaphysics uh i, I love law i love symbolic logic when you get into typology it to me I, I can't make heads or tails of it like i'm the first one to say that i've always I've said that back in the day to taylor marshall i, I say that occasionally on my show like the, it seems like there's enough interpretive latitude being left here by like oh you know rome is partly clay feet and partly iron feet i'm like I don't know, or like Athens, like, I don't know, like, sure. I don't, I, I, it's all Greek to me, right? Sure. Except I'd, I'd rather be doing Greek philosophy. Sure. Um, so how, how do you, what's the like touchstone by which you say, yeah, this, not that. I mean, like when people go through Benedict 16 is the catacon, it has to mean something um, to me that, that that's an interesting theory. I mean, like, I'm not saying I think Francis is antichrist because I don't think he is. And that, that would be nope. almost required by it, I, I suppose. I think that's what they mean when they say it. But I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a metaphysician. I love logic. I love, you know, I'm a you know, guy with a, a law degree, love constitutional law. Um, I love ethics. But these are all branches of philosophy. And yeah, I love studying Thomas. When it comes to this stuff and, and the anagogical, the typological I don't know how I don't know how to tell what's what. So yeah. why not why not Benedict? Why are you so confident it's not Benedict? Why are you so confident it means the church or the Pope? Oh, I'm not. I, I'm well. You asked what my touchstone ultimately is. Uh, I'll say I try I try for it to be the fathers as much as possible. The church has said that the unanimous consent of the fathers is infallible. So if the fathers are of one mind on one particular thing, it is infallible, and Catholics are required to accept it. So I do think these days there's a tendency in some Catholic circles to be too obsessed with private revelation, especially with all the confusing things going on. And so I would, you know, I came from Protestantism and I came to Protestantism through two things, reading the Bible very carefully and realizing that a variety of Protestant ideas and doctrines just were not scriptural um, and reading the fathers. I was exposed to the fathers in 2017. Uh, the Catholic faith smacked me across the face and uh, became Catholic. And so, so my goal is, I think we need to look at this more through a thoroughly scriptural, patristic lens, 
within the red lines established by the magisterium. Now on this topic, the magisterium has not been especially specific. I would say the most specific it's probably gotten is in the, in the Council of Trent, the uh, Roman Catechism. It talks about the end times and it says there are pre, uh, three principal signs that will precede the coming of our Lord. Mm-hmm. First sign is the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The second sign is there will be a great apostasy. And the third sign is that Antichrist will come. So mm-hmm. I take it as a given right now. I guess this, you could argue this, but I think in the age of the internet and every single place on the earth being explored, um, at least on land, um, that, that the first condition has been met. The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Yeah. The third condition has not been met. Antichrist, he may be alive today, but he has not yet appeared. He's not yet made himself known. So then, yeah. the, then the question becomes, well, what about the second condition, the great apostasy? And this is where it gets interesting. It's what is the nature of that apostasy? And there's a lot of confusion about that, in my opinion. Um, but I, I'll tell you that I, I do think intrinsic to the great apostasy is the rebellion of the temporal power from the spiritual power. I do believe that's an, an intrinsic part of the great apostasy. So the great apostasy is, is not simply, it is this, but it's not simply a mass of Catholics rejecting the faith. And, and I won't claim um, it's necessarily a Pope falling or something, though, frankly, I think that's possible, which is where the, the, the Benedict issue may come in. The Francis issue may come in. I, I don't know. I don't presume to tell people this is what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, but there, yeah. So, so, but there is a tradition uh, you can see in a Sylvester Berry, Father Sylvester Berry writes about this. Mm-hmm. And there's some other pre Vatican II uh, commentaries on apocalypse where they do think that um, aspects of the, of the apocalypse do refer to the fall of a great hierarch, potentially a Pope into heresy. I was just watching um, Father Charles Murr the other day. He was on with Robert Moynihan, and yeah. he knew he knew Mother Pasqualina, who was the private secretary to Pope Pius XII. So in 1950, Pope Pius XII was walking through the Vatican Gardens, and he came out, and Mother Pasqualina was his closest confidant for 40, 50 years, something like that. And he said that he had seen the dancing of the sun, the same as at Fatima. And Mother Pasqualina asked. Uh, the Pope, was there any message associated with it? And she said there was only one word that the Pope gave her, and it was apostasy. And it scared her, and she went to a dictionary and double-checked it meant what she thought it meant. But yeah, he had said apostasy. Father Murr just told the story the other day because Mother Pasqualina told this to him very, very directly. So, you know, obviously I would consider that in the realm of private revelation. But my point being that at the end of the day, what is the source of order and lawfulness that God has established in the world? It's the spiritual hierarchy and the temporal hierarchy, the spiritual sword and the temporal sword. Christendom was the temporal sword, not perfectly, it's not a paradise, it's not a utopia, but the temporal sword submitted to the spiritual sword. Uh, Pope Galatius I very famously articulated this, but he used a very specific Latin term. For the temporal sword, he referred to potestas. You would know this better, you know Latin, I don't. But potestas, the power. And when it referred to the spiritual sword, he referred to octoritas, the, the authority. And so Christendom is where the temporal sword is ultimately submitted to the spiritual sword. Why? It goes to basic Catholic uh, theology of salvation. In a state of original sin, our intellect is darkened and our will is weakened. So we need grace. We need God's living presence in our souls for our intellect to be enlightened and our will to be strengthened. Why? So we can love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Without, without God's grace, we cannot fulfill the commandments ever. Um, Catholicism is the most grace-filled religion I've ever encountered, quite contrary to what I thought as a Protestant. And so analogically, it applies similarly to the situation of the state. Um, the state, absent the guidance of the spiritual power, cannot legislate according to the natural, cannot perceive the natural law, let alone legislate according to it. So ever since, it's very interesting, Christendom was hardly perfect. But throughout all the long centuries of Christendom, you wouldn't have found really anybody until maybe Machiavelli who would have said anything like the Ten Commandments are not true or the moral, the moral law is not encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Whereas in, the, in just the last few centuries, not only is that not acknowledged, but people would laugh at you, especially in elite Western circles. You know, there's a moral law and, and God gave it to us and we're bound to it regardless of our own private desires and wills. It's like, yeah, well... Not only do states not only legislate the natural law or anything like it, they're now actively legislating, as you've talked about, unnatural law. <laughs> and so this is precisely part of that, I would argue, part of that great apostasy, and it will ultimately culminate in Antichrist. There's many more details to it. I'm happy to talk about with the passion of the church and all the typology of that. Um, but that's ultimately what it is, I think. It's part of it. Well, a couple things. One, uh, I, I don't like. Machiavelli is the inflection point between ancient and modern. I, I don't love it because maybe in the post-Christian era, that's fine, but you had all sorts of, you know, Glaucon, uh, Democritus. You're right. Uh, yeah, you know, all kinds of interlocutors out of the, the Greek tradition, the sophists, Alcibiades. Totally, totally. That, that would have would have out of hand rejected the Ten Commandments and and out of hand rejected the natural law, right? Totally. Aristotle's always quoting bias, you know, so, and Aristotle says, you know, only, only a fool in book, book four of the Nicomachean ethics, um, only a fool wouldn't understand the difference between phusis and nomos, yeah. mistaking yeah. all for phusis or all for nomos. So yeah, maybe in, in the first Christian millennium after, after Constantine, yes, for those seven or 800 years, you're not really going to find anyone in the Western tradition that's, um, that's saying you know that's questioning the ten commandments is because you know in the christian west you, you'd get in big trouble for doing it um yeah. and it, it was and because education seemed to have worked somewhat properly early classical education but and you didn't get a lot of nonsense until the the pre-formers the pre-reformers which is really the yep. pre-reformation is really what began the enlightenment if you ask me but so i i don't i don't think it's uh I don't think it's Machiavelli. I think it's the. Right I would agree way. with you. It's, it was just a quick example, just a quick side note. Yeah. Okay. So all that aside, what? Again, this is my philosophic mind. I don't. I don't have much of a theological mind. I. I, I love metaphysics. Metaphysics is the opposite of theology, right? What is? I mean, okay. So let's let's take the the three basic aspects of apocalypto, which is. Um, you know, you have the gospels gone to the end of the world. We, for some time now, we agree there. Then you have a great apostasy. Then you have Antichrist. Antichrist, I agree, um, hasn't yet appeared. I think everyone out there that's listening is like, yeah, he hasn't. Some, some kooks think it's Francis and that Francis has taken the mask off. I've never trusted Francis from day one, but the mask is not off qua Antichrist. It might be off for. Here's what I meant by I want to make a mess of the church. 
and it might be antichristic, but he has not taken off the mask as antichrist, nor do I believe it's it's him. It won't be a pope. Virtually certain antichrist will not be a pope. Oh, right. The, yeah, yeah. The all. The, the, There'll be a temporal ruler. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be a. That's that's like all the fathers. But let's 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 hone in on what's meant by the great apostasy, and how that relates to how restraining or withholding would be necessary. I I find it vexing. Parish orphans and retrogrades. I will freely tell you, all of the um, ad hoc analysis. Sur- surgical in some places that great theologians apply to what's what's meant by apostasy what's meant by this greek word or that that hebrew word um we don't even know the particulars like how, how what lay people just stop believing the faith that's not it and what's the relationship between a great apostasy if it's not a pope falling out of favor though you acknowledge the possibility of that josh yeah falling from grace and if we're not talking about like Honorius or something like that, I don't know why he would yeah. be ruled out. Then why? What's the role of the restraint? I mean, why why restrain the apostasy before it happens if it has to happen? Like how how are we to make for the, sense for the coming in of the elect because of the first sign? That's what it's all related to. The gospel has to go to the ends of the earth precisely so that all the elect of God and God's foreknowledge come into the church. That's the reason why. So, so, what, does that, what does that mean? I, I accepted it as a given. Now I want to undo that. What does that really mean? You're assigning some term of art to go to the ends of the earth. I thought it just means pretty no, much. No, that's from Jesus. Jesus said this gospel must go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So that's yeah, directly. I mean, go to the ends of the earth. That's not, that's not as clear as we could sit here and pretend it means that it's going to, every single person has the, at least the opportunity to become a Christian. You're right. Yeah, there's there's some. I think there's some ambiguity there. But I uh, again, I'm working from the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism. It says that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and I think Jesus says somewhere that so it can be a testimony. He speaks earlier to the Jews about you know you wouldn't have been in you wouldn't have been in sin if I hadn't told you, but now I've told you, and so now basically you're responsible. And so it's for that sort of thing, so that the whole world is given that moment of you've all been told, it's been put out there. So it's it's a testimony either for you, against you, whether you accept it or you reject it. And so now is the time when there will be a great falling away. And St. Robert Bellman talks a lot about this in uh, in his book on the Antichrist, this falling away. And maybe this is where I could talk a little bit about the anti-church, because there's many, many elements of this are related to this aspect as well, because this is a term that a lot of people use these days, anti-church. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of vague what they mean. I think there's actually quite a bit in scripture and in the fathers that we can get about what the anti-church is. And I think it's actually very related to, uh, to the Eucharist, uh, to, to liturgical matters. Um, do you, do you mind if I transition to that topic? Yeah, go for it. It sounds, okay. sounds like a good answer to a less than good question. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked with Eric Sammons about this the other day, he'll release part two later this week. Um, so we know that the standard Augustinian uh, breakdown of the players in history, so to speak, is the city of God and the city of man, the body of Christ and the body of the devil. The body of the devil is a term you'll find in the Father. St. Thomas Aquinas uses it. And it's just the body of the believers and body of unbelievers. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, however, is that in St. Augustine, he doesn't use the term anti-church, but he talks about this a lot, uh, that there's a part of the body of the devil in the church on earth, now we're talking on earth here, not talking heaven. 
there's a part of the body of the devil that is within the visible church during the church's earthly pilgrimage. Now, here's, here's, I talk with this with Eric as well. There can be a general definition of the anti-church and a specific definition. What would the general definition be? The general definition would be anybody who is in some sense part of the body of the devil, which any of us could be through mortal sin, right? That's not quite what I'm talking about when I say anti-church, so I'll say a more specific definition. Uh, The specific definition would be those who are within the visible church but no longer have the faith. Many fathers talk about this phenomena. Um, Even St. John in his smaller epistles, when he's talking about antichrist, he speaks of antichrist as both an external and an internal phenomena. He talks about those who left us but were not of us, and he connects this with antichrist. He said, you have heard antichrist is coming, the singular, but there are now many antichrists in the world. And many of the fathers associate this not only with pagans and those who are outside the church explicitly, but heretics and schismatics as well, who eventually separate. And so if you had a Venn diagram, my hands aren't big enough, but if you had a Venn diagram, the overlap, you have the church and the world, that overlap during the church's pilgrimage on earth is the anti-church. It's the body of the devil that's within the visible church. And basically the pattern of history is the anti-church, which is one part of the body of the devil, teams up with the world, the external body of the devil, to persecute the church. It's a constant pattern throughout history. And we preeminently see it in the passion of our Lord. So this is where the typology is very important. Um, You know, the catechism, I think it's paragraph 675 through 77, says that prior to the coming of Antichrist, and I think the coming of Antichrist will be part of it, there will be a final Passover for the church, a final passion of the church. And the, the church explicitly connects this passion of the church with the passion of our Lord. So as our Lord in his individual body had a passion, the church in its mystical body, our Lord's body, mystical body, will experience something similar, a typological fulfillment, so to speak. And so that's where it gets very, I think, potentially very, very interesting. I don't presume to have unraveled every potential conclusion from it, but what happened with our Lord's passion? Essentially, there were people in his apostolic band, Judas, of course, uh, who teamed up with members of his own people, the leadership of his own people, not all of them, but many of them. And they went with the Romans and they teamed up with the Romans to persecute Christ. And at the end of the day, all all who stuck with Christ was St. John, Our Lady, and a few women. That's it. And so I believe that typologically that passion of our Lord is very, very instructive about what will be the passion of the church, whether it's in our time or a time yet to come. Okay, yeah. So you, you're saying that typologically, you know, some very small fraction of bishops will be uh, with Jesus. I get it. Uh, here, what, what do you say to this, though? Just, just reason with me now. Sure. We're talking about whether we're talking anti-church, this term that seems to insinuate something vast, a vast sort of selling out by the church of the church, or the antichrist, a, a vast selling out. Of, of Jesus by some powerful figure. You run into something that I think is like the, the outrageous banal uh, binary. The outrageous banal binary is like, well, if by antichrist or anti-church, you mean something sweeping, then it's probably outrageous to say, well, you know, some, some people out there think, oh, is Francis the antichrist? Well, that's outrageous on the one yeah. hand. Is the yeah. anti-church 
the Roman Catholic Church as it's visibly established in the seat of Rome today. That's outrageous. There are a lot of like, I guess, SSPV that believe that or a lot of, you know, Cetipicontists uh, or even even Beneplenists could could fall into this. It's outrageous. And I don't I'm not with them on that. Yeah, um, I don't I don't you definitely aren't either. Yeah. But then if you say, OK, the, the banal, the other end, what Antichrist or anti-church might mean. And then you you diminish the universe of all possible meaning for what? Well, there are lots of antichrists. You know, this is what what um, um, apocalypse researchers will always say. And there's the anti-church is just a portion of the church that's not faithful, that that sells out, that, that yeah. thinks, that works with the world. Well, now, yeah, it's not outrageous, but now you're not you're saying so little that you're it's not really worth saying. And so there's I, what I'm always telling people when they talk about the anti-church or the antichrist is there's got to be some middle ground where it's not completely uh, incredible, not worthy of belief, and that it's an outrage. And at the same time, it's worth saying. I just am always like, okay, what is the great apostasy? And I was talking about yeah. this with Dr. Mike Cirilla at Steubenville. Yeah, good friend. What's the, great, what's the great apostasy? He's a good good dude. What is the great apostasy? It sounds a lot like not necessarily the Pope at some time in the future will be Antichrist, but that most of the church will be with Antichrist. You know, something along the lines of Mal- what Malachi Martin came to believe. Which, by the way, that's what Cesar- St. Cesarius of Arles says. He's a church father. He's a doctor of the church. In his commentary on the Apocalypse, he literally says, and part of the reason I mentioned the Antichurch, again, my, my goal is not to tell people this is exactly what's happening. My goal, I think what's needed today is a, a, um, a more mystical appreciation for what the church is, the mystery of the church, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of his sufferings. And to participate in that mystery is to not only experience persecution from without, is to, is to experience it from within. And so St. John and Our Lady stuck with our Lord, and the reason is why. Well, our Lord constantly talked about eyes to see. I believe they had eyes to see, and those eyes to see see beyond, look, we're dealing with external realities right now that are very disturbing. Um, But my goal is to say, here's a typological framework that's based in the fathers, that's based in scripture, and provides, I've I've seen it provide a lot of peace to a lot of people. Um, So this, this is where it gets very, very interesting with the Eucharistic element, though, because I think you see that same restrain, release, return pattern here. And it's, well, it's wait, very before yeah. we go on to that. Let, let's sure. just let's just stay hang here for a sec. Sure, sure. Promise we'll, we'll have time for the Eucharistic thing. But like, sure. I think for it to be a, to really specific thinkers, I I don't agree that staying abstracted, staying anagogical, and staying strictly an, in the realm of the analogical. Can, can really offer real grace. I mean, talk to a hypochondriac when you're like, well, I'm worried this means this. You know, I'm worried that these symptoms mean this. You need specifics. And so to, to stay in this outrageous banal binary where it's like, well, you think the term antichrist means what it sounds like it means. It doesn't. It means something much more boring. And you know, by the end of their explanation, you're like halfway to sleep. You're like, well, I mean, if there's like an antichrist in every city and every age, then that no one really cares. If there's an anti-church, that just means people in the church will turn against it and think. And 
So, I, I mean, do you agree? Can we come to some ground that like, okay, with all these equivocal usages, again, I'm a philosopher, so I'm like, Univocity, equivocity, prosen equivocity. I think we need some middle term. Never heard that last term. <laughs> I admit. It's, it's, it's Aristotle 101, right? Okay. It's, it will become analogy for Thomas. It's, okay. you know, there's, there's, you can use terms in an equivocal way where you're yeah. calling two totally different things the wrong thing. In a univocal way, you're using, you're designating two substances with the exact same term or prosen equivocity, like, uh, what what is the dog star serious got to do with dogs? Well, it's a like it, but in only one way. It's equivocity from one. That's what I'm looking for here is a kind of middle middle term that we can middle outrageousness level for what is the antichrist? What's the anti-church? What's the great apostasy? I feel well, like well, yeah. I feel like we get caught in these loops where you're like, oh, it's a lecture on. The anti-church or, or the anti-Christ or the great apostasy that's coming, it's guaranteed to come. Like people, people want to use symptoms to diagnose. I, I'm speaking as a hypochondriac here. People want to diagnose their own symptoms. And it what seems like it happens, Josh, in these talks. Everyone I've ever seen is they're like, Well, it's not this, it's not this specific. Nero was an antichrist. And you're kind of like, all right. But I mean, it has to be, I mean, didn't aren't we to be criticized for not being able to see the signs of our times? Like, shouldn't people, I'm not saying Francis is the antichrist, but shouldn't people be applying this some to the unprecedented crisis of the church? Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. And, and part of it is just, I'm trying to be prudent on my part. I definitely have thoughts about this. I'm just not prepared to talk about it publicly just yet, just to be honest with you. I, and I've said this in all my interviews, I, I have my own suspicions Look, when people have asked me, you know, do you think we'll see the Antichrist in our lifetimes? My suspicion at this point, you know, I came into the Catholic Church right before COVID. So my first Easter was during COVID. When mm -hmm. during COVID, what happened? Uh, almost all the public celebrations of the Mass were suspended worldwide, certainly mm -hmm. in the historic Christian areas. There's only one person in Scripture that does that. It's Antichrist. It's Antichrist. And so that's where I think, um, yeah, I have suspicions. Do I think it's at this point, do I think it's more likely than not that in my lifetime we'll see Antichrist? I'd say, yes, at this point, I think it's more likely than not. But mm. no, I, I actually think there's a lot more specificity of this than I normally hear. I think the disintegration of Christendom is definitely more specific than I often hear. The, the um, rebellion of the temporal power against the spiritual power. Um, this was, I think, kind of symbolically finalized uh, or almost finalized when uh, Pope Paul VI laid his tiara at the altar. He was sort of surrendering the temporal authority of the Pope. This is something that Henry Cardinal Manning, a great English cardinal convert in the 19th century, he said that the moment something like that happens, you can be sure you're in the epoch of Antichrist. That's what he thought. That was his opinion. You know, not an ex-Cathedra uh, definition or anything. But um so no, I think I think understanding that uh, the rebellion of the temporal from the spiritual, I think that's definitely much more specific than much of what we've gotten. I also think the Eucharistic element is really important. I think you'll find this this part potentially very interesting. Um, and uh, I'm I'm kind of synthesizing all this. There's a whole lot of quotes and stuff I can't remember just off the top of my head. But um, a guy who really did help open my eyes to this was. He was actually the guy who originated the term city of God versus city of man. He's the guy who Augustine appropriated that from named Tychonius. Now, some will say he was a Donatist. That wasn't 100% clear 
to Tychonius, or I'm sorry, to his contemporaries or to succeeding uh, commentators. But Tychonius did a commentary on the book of Apocalypse. And St. Augustine basically fully adopts, almost fully adopts what Tychonius says. St. Bede, who wrote the greatest commentary on Apocalypse in the Western world, he basically takes everything Tychonius said. Saint, uh, Pope Benedict XVI said he was a great theologian. And what did Tychonius say? What was one of the things he said? He, he didn't use the term anti-church, but he basically said um, that the anti-church grows with the church. And this is where I think in this sort of theory of, of history, the pagan, more uh, circular conception of time is synthesized with the Christian linear conception of time. As I explained to Eric, it's like a series of crescendos through time. You know, the first few centuries after the incarnation, Christendom is being built. When you read the fathers, the fathers are constantly saying to the pagans, you know, I read the fathers all the time. You can see them right there. Uh, they, they made me Catholic. Um, you, you'll see the fathers say to the pagans all the time, look all around you. The pagan altars are falling. Uh, your, your priests are being driven out by priests of Jesus Christ, where you were previously sacrificing the demons. You're now offering the sacrifice of the Eucharist. So there's this, there's this building up of Christendom. And so, therefore, uh, the times preceding Antichrist would see the breakdown of this very system. It includes the temporal and the spiritual power. It also includes the Eucharist and the liturgy, I believe. I believe it's personally related to the Eucharist and the liturgy as well. So here's the reason why. Um, as I said earlier, the fathers are unanimous that one of the things Antichrist will do is suspend the public celebration of the Mass for the final three and a half years, Okay which seemed like we got a dress rehearsal with COVID. Um, yeah. You know, one, one of the, just as a quick side note, one of the preeminent uh, signs of our times, it seemed to me, I remember it to this day, was in March of 2020 when we were seeing Italy all closed down. All the churches in Italy were shut down and Pornhub announced that they were going to be offering free premium accounts to people in Italy. And I think they did that elsewhere as well. So that was sort of a picture of the sort of antichristic nature of it. So um, they, where do the fathers get this, that antichrist will do this? Well, from Daniel, from Daniel. Now, Daniel prophesied what he called an abomination of desolation. Mm -hmm. And Jesus prophesied something similar. And it is mysterious. These, part of the nature of prophecy is it does become clearer as we get closer to fulfillment. And I do think there are a lot of things that we can, with a very high degree of certainty, be much clearer about now than even Augustine could have been about. Not because we're smarter than Augustine or holier than Augustine, but simply because 1,600 more years have elapsed, which is a lot. So Daniel prophesies that there will be this abomination of desolation. Now, one of the agreed um, in the fathers, one of the agreed uh, types of this abomination of desolation was carried out by Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the Greek king of the Seleucid Empire, which ruled the Holy Land at that point. So at the very beginning of the books of Maccabees, it says that there was a huge contingent within the Jewish people who wanted to team up with the Greeks and basically abandon the covenant. So again, you've got the anti-church, the world teaming up against the faithful Jews. Same pattern, same typological pattern. So it eventually culminates, uh, eventually Anti uh, Antiochus wants to impose the Greek system on the Jews. He's a type of antichrist. All the fathers say this. And um, in his letter, he writes a letter to all the kingdoms and basically says, I want all of you to abandon your national customs and become one people. So, you know, you talk about subsidiarity a lot and globalism and whatnot. So this type of antichrist is literally doing the exact same thing. Abandon your national customs and whatnot. And many of the people within the chosen people 
wanted to follow him. So when you hear a lot of Catholics wanting to do similar things today, again, these are just typological realities that repeat, 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 and I, I would argue crescendo to the final climax of history. Here's mm -hmm. where it gets very interesting. So eventually there's a war, right? Antiochus has to subdue a rebellion in, uh, in the Holy Land. Now, when does this type of the abomination of desolation occur? It, it occurs when Antiochus walks into the Holy of Holies. Uh, and just by the fact that a Gentile is walking into the Holy of Holies, it would have been an abomination if a Jew had done that who wasn't the high priest. But the fact that he was a Gentile walking in there would have been sufficient. Maccabees isn't totally clear. He either uh, set up an idol or maybe sacrificed a pig. You know, it would have just been absolutely horrible in Jewish eyes. Now, here's where it's very interesting. Uh, Antiochus was escorted into the Holy of Holies by a man named Menelaus. Who was Menelaus? Well, Menelaus was the Jewish high priest at that time. Now, the books of Maccabees are very clear that Menelaus was not a legitimate high priest. He was a false high priest. He had actually stolen the high priesthood through what we would call simony from his brother Jason. And Jason had stolen it from the legitimate high priest, Onias. So you have a legitimate high priest who's, I think, under basically under house arrest. And then you have um, Jason, and scripture explicitly says he, Jason, was no high priest. But then Menelaus steals it from Jason. So you have a false high priest ex uh, escorting a type of antichrist into the temple, which is seen by many fathers as a type of the church. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says Antichrist himself will seem to darken the church. Now, he doesn't get any more specific than that. He doesn't, and, and frankly, I can't get any more specific than that. That's not my goal. My goal is for people to understand that there will be a degree of darkness that, like on Holy Saturday, we won't be able to make sense of it. If somebody wanted to engage in a debate on Holy Saturday about whether Jesus was Messiah, uh, Our Lady would have believed he was Messiah. St. John would have believed he was Messiah. A few of those ladies would have believed he was Messiah. But if you were in a debate, let's be honest, that would have been the worst possible day ever to have a debate about whether Jesus is Messiah. Your strongest, most vocal supporter, St. Peter, has left. He's gone. Uh, you were betrayed from within. You were killed. You were doing all these miracles, but apparently you're not miraculous enough to save yourself, which is what many people were jeering him about. Um, and so I believe I do believe we're very possibly entering a period where that may we may be faced with something similar, where Christ was was uh, was dead. He was he was on the way to resurrection, his ultimate triumph. But the church, I think it's possible typologically, it's possible it will appear as dead. And only those who are willing to accept the mystery of that suffering in the midst of it, like St. John and Our Lady, will be able to accept that and not be scandalized. Because there yeah, will I mean, be no can, rational reasons to not be scandalized at that point. How can how can a church uh, appear dead while having an active, faithful pontiff at the head of it? How can I don't a, know. how can a church appear dead while uh, people will throw this vague line out there like it's some proof text that that bad stuff can't happen at the very high levels of the church yeah. about the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? None of these are like sufficiently specific. Sure. This is the kind of stuff that, like, people who are untrained in propositional thought yell at each other about on Twitter, right? Like, oh, but the gates of hell shan't. Well, I don't know what the, that's yeah. not specific. Like, even you said, oh, it's there's some vagueness in the gospel shall go yeah. to the end. That's 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 purely vague. That's not like the way propositional 
reasoning works. Propositional reasoning is like Socrates is a man. All men are mortals. Therefore, Socrates is a mortal. Like, I, I don't know what it means when these usages are all so equivocal. So the point being, like, how can the church be up to very high levels in apostasy without having a proper pope uh, be the one to lead the Antichrist into the Holy of Holies, if we're, if we're extending the typological analogy, if we're extending the type, right? How, would it count if, like, what are you suggesting? Oh, you're not suggesting anything, but an anti-pope, that's Possibly. why we believe to be a pope? Possibly. It, but th- this is why it's related very much to the coming in of the elect. Um, if all the elect have come in, then uh, history has entered a final and decisive phase because all those who will accept the gospel will have come in. I'm not sure if it's on the, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. I'm not sure if it's as vague as you're suggesting, only because, I mean, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, I've told you, and therefore now you're accountable. And so, and, and he said he went to the Jews first. Now, did Jesus talk to every single Jew in the land of Israel? No, he didn't. Um, so I, I think it generally refers at the very minimum to the gospel going to every nation. And I think there's a, I, yeah, I admit there's some ambiguity in that, but I also think um, uh, there's a very good argument, especially in the age of the internet, that the gospel has in fact gone to the ends of the earth. And the cataconic uh, order of Christendom that from the day of the incarnation forward was being built has slowly and then quickly and now almost completely disappeared. I mean, Christendom is gone. Um, the moral order that it established and it kind of helped hold in place is gone. You, you've, you've spoken very clearly about this and we agree completely. Um, what, uh, you know, Christendom was not a paradise. It wasn't a utopia, but, but again, we're, we're not, we're not even in the period of we're barely holding natural law. No, we're legislating unnatural law. So, you know, and I would say, um, I appreciate your desire for a clear proposition. I would just say that's not the nature of prophecy. It's not the nature of typology. Um, I know that's the line. I know that's the line. Well, theology it's, it's true. It's theology true. guys always use, but it's not useful unless it's specific. That's that's well, already given. Well, let me go. Let me go into the. I, I think the element of the temporal rebelling from the spiritual is quite specific, and I I think it's almost complete in our day. Um, that's, yeah, uh, that's, just that's the death. Easy. So I think that's very specific. The Eucharistic element is very. This is a part of the passion that's very interesting, and you get it primarily in John's gospel. So at the la- the very first time that John identifies Judas as the betrayer is John 6, mm-hmm. where Christ is speaking as openly and explicitly about his real presence in the Eucharist. Very yeah, first time it's, John it's the next verse. It's like verse 71 or verse 72. Yeah. People always yeah. forget this. Yeah. yeah, it's toward the end. Um, and also, you know, Judas is the human, the humanist, of course, he, he cares about the people and, and the poor people. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Yeah. uh, that's the very first time Judas is identified as the betrayer. And yet he remains, he doesn't go with that crowd of people that openly reject Christ, right? He remains within the apostolic band. So that's yeah. very significant as well. Yeah. Um, you know, just a quick side note, Apocalypse, I think it's 13, talks about two beasts, and it speaks about one that is like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. So it's something similar. You know, the, many of the fathers commenting on Apocalypse 13, uh, like I said, St. Cesarius of Arles says, this is the church of heretics. 
What exactly he means by that, I'm not entirely sure. Again, I'm not I'm not here to say X, Y, Z is exactly what's happening. But yeah, what they'll I, try to make I, you sound simplistic if you're like, what does this mean? First basic question in philosophy is like, okay, you use this equivocal usage. What is what is it? What is its quiddity here? In, in theology, these guys will be like, oh, don't be simplistic. You're like, well, I mean, I'm just trying to use propositional thought, brother. But like that's one conversation I've had when you go to the gospel of life, uh, or yeah. bread of life discourse in John chapter six, it's quite amazing. Even Catholic defenders and apologists and biblical theologians of the, the real presence don't use the argument that you read verses, you know, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, and, and Jesus is going through all those beautiful lines of yeah. the real presence. You know, if you don't eat the bread of life, you don't have life in you. But then it says Judas, sure, it's a post-hoke ergo propter hope, but it then says like verse 70, 71, 72, Judas went off and he couldn't believe it. And then he made his deal with the devil. And these yeah. are direct, direct quotes, but sure. Uh, I'm like, that's really cool. You know, like, again, me, just a philosopher. I yeah. look at this and I'm like, sure, it's a post-hoke, but I literally, said, you know, I, I would say, hey, Protestants who don't have the real presence of the Eucharist, yeah, Judas becomes like satanic, a diabolic man who becomes the great betrayer of Christ because specifically of the doctrine of the real presence. They'll go, well, it doesn't say that. He 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 goes off and he makes his deal afterward. I'm like, it's pretty clear, man. I mean, yeah. I'm not again, I'm not a biblical theologian. I'm just a Oh no, it get, it gets even more it gets even more interesting from there. So we get to the the Last Supper narrative in John. It's very different from the synoptics. I, I I don't even think John includes the words of institution, which is very interesting. But there's a conversation where um, Jesus is talking about one of you will betray me. And John is leaning against his chest, and John asks him privately, Lord, who is it? And Jesus tells him, seemingly privately, the one to whom I give this morsel. And many of the fathers say that this was, in fact, the Eucharist. So Jesus hands the Eucharist to Judas. And then immediately it says Satan went into him. Uh, Not an accident. You know, Paul's language in Corinthians about he who doesn't discern the body and the blood, whatnot, comes to mind. And then Jesus says to Judas, go and do what you're going to do quickly, which mm-hmm. again mirrors the language of the release of Satan in Apocalypse 20. He'll be released for a short time. And, and the broad patristic consensus that the period of Antichrist will be a, rel- at least Antichrist direct rule, will be a, a quick time. So again, you have this Eucharistic element where Jesus identifies his betrayer. John identifies Jesus' betrayer with the Eucharist. And then Jesus personally identifies his betrayal to the with the with the eucharist and so and then you connect this with all the fathers saying that antichrist will bring the public celebration of the mass to an end now Mm -hmm. god's not a voluntarist so why would god in the economy of god's justice why would god allow this presumably for a sufficient reason and i believe personally and i think there's a very these are all good reasons to to think this is true that that sufficient reason will be because of liturgical abuses and the rampant lack of belief and even the real presence in the church when somebody receives our lord unworthily that theologically what they're doing is crucifying christ again and as that explodes that increases within the church it means that our lord is being crucified again in his own house in the exact same way he was during the passion so 
there again, there, there, I do think there's a very firm connection there with the Eucharist when it comes to in scripture, we'll see that whatever it is that's restraining wickedness, it stops restraining at some point. And, and the first three and a half years of Antichrist are not the full-on persecution. It really unleashes in those final three and a half years. And those three and a half years are inaugurated by the making illegal of the public celebration, the public sacrifice of the mass. So there's something about the Eucharist, I think, that's also related to the catacomb in that sense. And, and this is also related to Christendom. Where, where does the power of Christendom come from? It comes from the power of the sacramental power of our Lord's body, uh, the blood and the water that came forth from his side, right? That's where the power of the sacrament comes from. The power to follow the commandments comes from the sacraments. I mean, Christendom is a sacramental civilization. And what's a sacramental civilization? A sacramental civilization essentially is when nature is joined to grace. That's what it is. And an anti-sacramental civilization is one in which nature is separated from grace. So I think that's another element. The, the great apocalypse is that great separation of nature from grace in every element of life. Um, you know, there was a book I read during the lockdowns called The War of the Antichrist with the Church and Christian Civilization. It was written in 1885. And, um, and it talks about this, about Freemasonry. And I know you've talked about Freemasonry a bit. And it basically talks about the Freemasonic and occultic agenda. They want to separate nature from grace at every level of society. They wanted to do it with total separation of church and state. They wanted complete secularization of education. They wanted easy divorce laws to make marriage just a business contract like any other. They wanted to uh, 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 degenerate the people's morals uh, for very specific reasons. But And he says it's all animated by a socialistic, communistic, ultimately pantheistic ideology of nature worship, and that this is about ultimately desacramentalizing Christendom. So that's why I'm saying Again, if you want if you want anything super specific beyond that, I don't have anything to give you. But what I am saying is that I think from Scripture we can de- we can derive many many more details about what the nature of this restraint is and what the nature of its being removed will be like. And so I do think it's related to the temporal and the spiritual power, the rebellion of the temporal from the spiritual. I definitely believe it's related to the Eucharist and the liturgy because that's the driving force of Christendom and everything Christian and Catholic. Um, and uh, so, and, and these are some of the connection points I would make. So you don't think it's Benedict sixteen? Uh, why not? Well, we'll, 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 well look, if it's it, I I pray for Francis as Pope every day. Um, I, I I don't I I'm not going to venture on uh, too much there. I will say what I will say is this: I wouldn't be surprised if there if there is a final Pope before Antichrist. I would certainly see the removal of that Pope, whether through murder or martyrdom or whatnot, as a, as certainly a kind of coup de grace of the removal of the catacon, for sure. I think that's absolutely possible. So Cardinal Henry Manning thought something like that would happen. He talked about that prior to the advent of Antichrist, Rome, he, and he claimed that this was all from the fathers, that Rome would drive out the vicar of Christ. And we have something potentially similar in the third secret of Fatima, at least the part that's been released to us. So, um, yeah, I think it's possible. And some of the pre-Vatican II commentaries on Apocalypse refer to this possibility as well. You know, there were multiple set of Acante periods in the ancient church. Uh, Pope Marcellus, I think, um, in the Liber Pontificalis, the official biographies of the popes of the Roman church, um, it's a little unclear what happened. There's some contradicting elements, but at least in the Liber Pontificalis, 
talks about Marcellus um, during the persecution of Domitian or Domitian. Um, he pinched some incense to the idol. And right. so he fell into apostasy. And now apparently he repented and was reconciled with the church before he died. But according to the Liber, that began a period of a, a very long set of a contact. I think in the Liber, it's about seven years. Um, and that, so that was one of the worst persecutions of the church. It was just prior to Nicaea, um, but it was one of the worst persecutions of the church. And it coincided with a period where um, a pope had apostatized, apparently, and there was no pope for a while. So do I think it's possible? Absolutely. Sure. Cue up all the finger wagging about the gates of hell not prevailing against history. People just don't know. I think our longest period of set of Conte is like 30 years or something. 20 I don't think years. it was that long. I'm not. What, which period were you thinking about? Uh, let's see. I, I was talking to, you know, or, um, Rob from avoiding Babylon about this. Oh said, yeah. 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 He said, he said it was, it was uh, two or three decades. And okay. the, the point is that we have a set of Agante every time powers change between popes and interregnums. And a lot of folks just don't seem to understand that. Um, also I'll get one more plug for this most basic point in there. The gates of hell, which I, I didn't even know hell had gates necessarily, won't prevail. That means win over the church. Okay, cool. I mean, that's a that's like an end run, right? Like Satan's not going to win over God. Check. I got it. That doesn't mean anything that it's often adduced or presented as if it means. Um, so, so I'm agreeing with you. Like, yeah, we could have... We could have some gnarly stuff happen at the topmost level of the church, at least apparently, with yeah. a, a pope, an anti-pope, whatever. And I that wouldn't be the gates of hell preventing prevailing yeah. pope, the, the church people. So yeah. Well, I mean, there was a I'm forgetting who it was, but I think I think the anti-pope's name may have been Anacletus something. I'm if I'm not there's so many there's about 40 of these guys. And so, but during that period, uh, the anti-pope was in Rome for eight years. And the, the authentic Pope was outside of Rome. Now, I think most of the Catholic world accepted the actual Pope as the Pope. Um, but the anti-Pope was in Rome for eight years. He, he physically possessed the cathedra for eight years during the medieval period. And so, um, yeah, I think that if there's, if there's two books I'd recommend people read, it's Roberto de Matei's uh, Filial Resistance to the uh, Love of the Papacy. It's a great book. And then there was a book written in the 70s by a Brazilian lawyer he accepted Vatican II and all that. It's called Can the Pope Be a Heretic? And I like both books because it really, they both draw on a lot of original sources that I don't think many Catholics are aware of um, that shows, you know, it shouldn't drive people to think, again, I think somebody who's trying to search for absolute, to accommodate your word, propositional certainty in this time, I'm not saying you're looking for that because you, you eschew trying to provide people that. I don't think that's, I don't think that's on offer. Uh, during whether it's the passion or a passion of the church. It's not on offer. Uh, it's, do you trust me? And are you willing to suffer with me? That's the primary question. And unless you can answer that question with a yes, you won't have any inkling of what's going on. Um, and so that's part of my answer to people is this mystery of suffer suffering must be accepted first before you expect to have anything intellectually tangible in your mind. During the passion of our Lord, Peter did betray our Lord. Peter was gone. Um, it, will that be typologically fulfilled with um, a long set of a Conte, an anti-pope? 
I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that the church herself tells us we will go through a passion just like our Lord did. Well, during our Lord's passion, the man he called Rock left. I, I don't know exactly what that means. But for me, it's sufficient enough. It's sufficient enough possibilities that I can honestly say never once lost my peace in the midst of this. I think a lot of it's due to the rosary, honestly. But, but I, I haven't. I haven't. There's, there's, there's so much. Ri- if you don't have typology, you don't have the gospel. Uh, the truths of Christ's identity could not have been arrived at by propositional syllogistic reasoning. It had to be opened by our Lord. When, when Peter proclaimed Jesus as the son of God, he didn't say, oh, you arrived at this through some brilliant exegesis of scripture. He said, no, this was given to you by my father in heaven. So um, the truths of faith, um, you know, reveal, and then we better understand once we have them. But I, I don't think we're going to arrive at syllogistic, purely propositional uh, solutions to the mystery of what's going on. That's just my personal take. Sure. No, that, that's fair. That's very well stated. And I, I don't have, I don't have qualms with any of it. It's just, it's present. I mean, people are going to be interested in what's going to happen to them. So I, I think what, what I issue that you're not doing um, is, Hey, you know, listen to my talk on, you know, end times. And then people, you know, you're, you're putting butts in the seats, not because people are being petty or myopic or stupid or, or even simple to be like, oh, I want to hear what this is. I want to hear, I, you know, a lot of people think we could be embarking on the end times. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing they tell you and the 10th thing they tell you and the last thing they tell you in the talk is like, now I'm not going to give you a symptomatology for this. It's like, all right, I, to, to acknowledge that one is disappointing one's listeners in, in, the, in the realm of the greatest desideratum that evidently, apparently a talk has is um, it, it's a little bit of funny burden shifting, right? Like, I mean, if I say, hey, I'm going to tell you guys a secret trick to get tons of muscle overnight you know like some some pimp on the internet you know you could do it and all you have to do is you know a half hour of work and you're gonna look like schwarzenegger in his prime and then people show up and you're like well no no i'm showing you how to eat healthy over the course of 30 years and this there's no get quick schemes and people like that's not what you said so yeah are interested in applying particularly after covid yeah. In applying like real uh, evidentiary tests yeah. to could this be, uh, could this, I mean, pro- look into Project Bluebeam, people. Could oh, yeah. this realistically be the end of the world? I don't think that's overly simplistic. I don't think you think it is either. No. But some no, of no, these no. guys, these talks are like, oh, you're being a simpleton. It's like, come on, man. People, people don't care about the academic discipline of any academic. Uh, ipso facto, they apply. They they care when it applies to their lives, and I know because I'm a I'm an academic philosopher. But yeah. look what I do every day. Like I, well, I, try, been, to, I try to yeah. pull out what's interesting to people in their real sure. non academic lives. Well, what's been very interesting to me is um, finding so much testimony in the fathers themselves that the state of the church prior to the coming of Antichrist will be very profoundly weak. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even some. Uh, I think one of the most profound and lesser known works of the fathers that really should be read more is the St. Pope Gregory the Great's Moralia on Job. It's very long. It's about the mm-hmm. length of City of God plus the Confession. City of God is very long. Um, but St. Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on Job, said Gregory did the, the mystical reading of Job so well, I'm not even going to attempt it. So, so, 
So when St. Thomas, so Thomas Aquinas says, I'm not even going to try, it's, you know it's good. And so yeah, he, yeah. he resigned himself to, I think, just the moral reading of Job. So, but St. Pope Gregory the Great, so he's a saint, he's a pope, he's a doctor of the church, and he's a, and he's a, a, a father of the church. So he's got literally the four biggest check marks you can get um, as a human being who was born in original sin and didn't have a divine nature, <laughs> our Lord and our Lady. <laughs> so he has the four biggest checks you can get. And he says that prior to the coming of Antichrist, the church will be profoundly weakened. He says that it's very, some of the specifics he gives are very interesting. I mean, I can read the quote if you want, the, the word is a little fancy, but um, he essentially says the, there will be fewer miracles. He says that the penances will be far weaker. And he says the words of doctrine will fall silent. Now, why does he say this? His answer to this is really, um, is really interesting and really beautiful. He, um, he says, for when Holy Church appears as if she were more abject on the withdrawal of signs of power, both the reward of the good increases who reverence her for the hope of heavenly things and not on account of present signs, and the mind of the wicked is the more quickly displayed against her, who neglect to pursue the invisible things which she promises when they are not constrained by visible signs. When, therefore, the humility of the faithful is deprived of the manifold manifestation of wonders, by the terrible judgment of the secret dispensation, there is heaped up more abundant mercy for the good and just anger for the evil by the same means. So, and this is also, when you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about this as well. He says, why does God allow this? He basically says, to draw those who, who hate righteousness out into the open. And it's kind of like a beginning of the judgment against those who hate righteousness. It's a, it's a pre-judgment. Now, mm -hmm. our Lord, he cited Zechariah 13.7. Zechariah 13.7 speaks about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. Mm -hmm. Well, right after that, Zechariah uh, speaks about um, three parts being thrown into the fire. Two parts will be burned and, you know, ashes, apparently. The other part will be refined like gold. And so that's essentially what Gregory is describing here, that through suffering, the saints gain merit. They get for, for a, a temporary suffering, God is willing to increase their eternal reward. And through that same suffering, the wicked are revealed and fall away. So that process is something that takes place throughout all of history, but that's preeminently something that's going to happen during the final persecution, the final suffering, the final passion of the church. The wicked will be revealed. And I think what we can all agree on for sure is that we're in a time period where wickedness is being revealed on an astounding scale, both within and without the church. And so that's that's part of what I've been so encouraged by reading the fathers and focusing less on, but what's the, you know, it was very sad to me when I saw this recent, um, oh, the sister had some vision of Benedict and whatever, you know, making all these crazy claims. Who is the sister? What, 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 what house is she in? You know, it's like none of these details are provided, but unfortunately there's this, I think, very unhealthy desire to know for many people and um, I'm saying, you know, when I was at the White House, my other speechwriting colleagues, many of us were Catholic converts. And so I joked with them one day. I said, um, you know, the thing that really sucks about being Catholic, and I'd been a Catholic for about a year now. And uh, they said, what? And I said, we can't complain about suffering. There's no more complaining about suffering. And so, yeah. so yeah. this is all very much related to it. The first question is not, I think it needs to be for many people, not what do you think is happening? It needs to be, are you willing to suffer? Because I think most of us are less willing to answer yes than we maybe think. Um, and part of that suffering is, as Gregory says, he says, part of that suffering is you don't have the visible signs right in front of you like you did before. 
that's part of the suffering that will precede Antichrist. Gregory says it in his Morale and Job. He has many other fascinating uh, observations about Antichrist and the end of the world. Um, but this is in many fathers. Again, St. Thomas Aquinas says Antichrist will seem to darken the church. Um, now, what's interesting about this, I'll get a little bit more experimental with you because you mentioned Project Bluebeam. I think we, uh, I, I haven't talked about this in public. May I, may, okay, some people think I'm weird. I don't really care. Um, so in my study of Freemasonry, um, I was always doing it with my, my spiritual director knowing which books and whatever. I became, before all this alien talk happened, I became absolutely convinced that what Freemasonry and occultism was essentially about was uh, an alliance between demonic entities and human beings. Now, why? It's essentially a rebirth of the pre-incarnation order of the world. Uh, uh, Cardinal Manning refers to this as natural society, society that is bereft of grace, has not been divinized by the sacraments. And so I became utterly convinced of this. And, um, you know, when Satan tempted our Lord, what was one of the things he tempted him with? The, the kingdoms of the world. So just bow down to me and I'll give you the kings of the world. Well, he, our Lord didn't need to bow down to him. He won the kings of the world by his blood. And then from, the, from when he ascended, the church started going out and started conquering all these people. I mean, some of the stories you see in the church fathers are nuts. I mean, in a, in a, in a cool, crazy, sometimes scary way about, you know, there was a story in, um, in Alexandria, Egypt, when it was the city was becoming Christian, the pagan priests were being thrown out and they found whole uh, 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 pits underneath the temples full of dead bodies that had apparently been sacrificed by these priests. You know, Paul refers to the gods of the nations or demons. He's, he's quoting Psalms there. So there's something about the pre-incarnation world in which the demonic was allied with humans to hold mankind and thraldom to idolatry. Um, and, and error. I mean, you talked about some of those Greek guys who would have totally rejected the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's part of what this demon-human alliance was meant to do. But then the incarnation comes, and Satan is bound, and that system is somehow, it's not destroyed yet, won't be destroyed to the end, but it's somehow restrained, right? And then the church grows, this, the rock becomes a mountain, becomes a mountain. Its sovereignty and its authority will never go away, as, as, as Daniel says. But then sometime toward the end, Satan is released for a brief time. So that binding, which was affected by our Lord's cross, is he in his providence, he undoes it. Now, what did our Lord's cross lead to? It led to the sacraments. It led to grace. Led to, so therefore, everything that proceeded from the cross that bound Satan would presumably become weaker when Satan is unbound. That's why I'm making all these connections to Christendom, to all the things we're seeing with marriage, with separation of church and state, with the, uh, with the pope. Um, uh, with, uh, with marriage, with education, all these things. Um, I think all these things are very, very much connected. And, uh, and, and when you see Freemasonry and you see, uh, it's very strange to me, this, all this talk about aliens. I, I, I'm, I'm with Daniel O'Connor on this. I, who, great guy. Um, I, I think they're likely demonic. Um, but in any event, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if something like that is used to massively deceive the world Paul says that Antichrist will come with all signs and wonders. He'll come by magic. He'll come by sorcery. Uh, many of the fathers say the same thing. What exactly will that include? Again, I don't know. But we're, for, the, for the first time, the last century or so, especially now, humanity is a truly global civilization. And so what is required to fool on a sorcery level a global civilization where you have instantaneous communication? Probably something related to technology. 
What exactly that could be, I don't know. But wouldn't be surprised at all if these things are part of a final deception that um, that draws people into error because they didn't really love the truth to begin with. Well, that's a good synopsis. That's a good that's a good capper. You gave a good uh, a good intro. You gave a good outro to the ideas. <laughs> uh, Joshua Charles, tell no, that's hard to do. It's hard to take a project you've been working on, scholarly work or whatever, talks, papers, and say someone say, hey, give us a quick intro at the beginning, give us a, an outro at the end. Um, very few people can do it ably, and you did it well, Josh. Uh, tell us where we can find your stuff and uh, your Twitter handle. And Yeah, Joshua T. Charles. Uh, and then my website is joshuatcharles.com. Working on synthesizing it all in a book, when you, ha- when you have the quotes lined up on each of these issues, just boom, 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 boom. Um, it's, uh, it's very, uh, it's very telling in my opinion. I do think the fall of Christendom, some people will say, is this, is this the great apostasy or not? I'd say, if it's not, what else would it look like? You know, yeah. that's, that's part of my question. You know, yeah, Christendom that's what, that's done, what Dr. The, says all the time. He's the, like, the Pope has surrendered his tiara. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Does that mean it's for it sure? The time? I don't know. It, I mean, how could it get much worse? <laughs> like, I mean, particularly a couple years ago in the midst of the beer bug, it's like, yeah. I, it could get worse. It can, I mean, people, they can actually start in the mark of the beast. They can actually start lopping heads off and, um, and um, just look into what they're planning with agenda 2030. That, that oh, yeah. that's in the, been the background with all this. They want to have this stuff done by 2027. 2000th anniversary of our Lord's either his public ministry or his death. Yeah, it's true. That's true. I don't yeah, think personally, I don't think it's a coincidence. I hadn't thought of that. That is two millennia, the, the, yeah. the bimillennial of uh gosh. Well, you've given us lots to think about today, Josh. Uh we we hit an hour and a half, which is about oh long. we did. Gosh, I didn't even realize it. No, it was good stuff, wow. man. I, cool. You avoided all the pitfalls of being overly <laughs> yeah. without without being overly committal. Uh yeah. I I appreciate you. You have yeah. any uh any uh, parting shots? One, one final observation. It's a mystery I'm pondering. I'm not providing an answer here, but it's a mystery I'm pondering. Yeah. Um, it was Peter who fell during our Lord's passion. John didn't. And yet John knew who the betrayer was and was silent. And so was Our Lady. Our Lady, I don't think, says a single word during this whole thing. So there's something about the discipline of silence in the midst of profound, in many ways, unexplainable suffering that I think is very much worth pondering, meditating upon, praying upon. I think most of us, especially for virile men, we're like Peter. We want to draw the sword. We want to attack the dragons. Mm-hmm. That was something our Lord specifically told Peter not to do. Mm-hmm. And he said to those who are coming to arrest him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. That's mm-hmm. what he said. So again, I don't have an affirmative propositional statement to, ask, to provide. I'm just saying this is a mystery. I continue to to uh, meditate on. Gladius Petri Impuserat. Gladius Petri Impuserat. One of my favorite expressions from Collins Latin is uh, the sword of Peter was wicked. The sword of Peter was impious. And that that is a a natural pitfall for someone like me. Gosh, it's hard. Some of my more truly holy friends. I mean, I try to be holy. I, I don't struggle with mortal repeated mortal sin but um yeah, yeah gosh i'm just a, i'm i'm just a loud mouth somebody you even see you know 
it's like, yeah, just, just be quiet. Just be quiet. And virile men struggle with this. I, yeah. I want to take action and I want to take verbal action, yeah. you know, yell something or go, go poke something in the face. But um, yeah, I, I, that, I will give you that. It does not bode well for me or for my personal sanctity. Cause I'm, I'm a loud mouth, but I, I will give you that every. It wasn't meant as a personal criticism, by the way. I'm saying no, 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 no. I'm oh, okay. No, okay. That one. I didn't know you didn't. Uh, not at all. But okay. I, I volunteer this. Yeah. People out there who watch the show every day know this is not my strength. I, I'm an action guy. Here's what we can do. I like. I like um, particularly sharp criticism. Yeah. I like traction criticism of what's evil. But uh, all of the spiritual reading I've ever done, and it's not its not as much as you. I'm more reading, you know, sure. Aquinas, philosophical works by some of the, the great uh, Catholics in the tradition that, boy, they all say that. It's like, yeah, be yeah. willing to suffer. Be willing to STFU as you suffer. Yeah. And uh, that, is not a, that is not a strength of mine. I, I, final, I final statement. St. Paul calls the crucifixion of our Lord, his passion, the foolishness of God. Uh, it's in First Corinthians, I believe. I remember very, that. very good to ponder this as well, because what we will have to go through through the passion of the church, I think, is typologically the fulfillment of what Christ went through in his passion. We will appear to be fools. I truly believe that's what we will appear to be. And unless we're humble enough to accept that, unless we're humble enough to accept that we're simply in the midst of the unexplainable, what, call, <laughs> what Paul calls the mysterion, uh, <laughs> that we're in the midst of the foolishness of God at work that saves the world, I think we'll miss it and we'll be scandalized. And I don't want people to be scandalized. Yeah, it's very, very well said. Yeah. And that, that, no, that, that's, that speaks to one of my strengths. I just told one of my great failings. One of the great strengths is I'm always preaching to people, epistemic humility. Like we, yeah, you are. we want, as, we want stuff as specifically as specific as it can be, but it's like, just stay and sub corporately. I'm fine with the suffering. Like, as a church, we don't know what the Francis pontificate means. It's bad, but it doesn't have to mean he's an anti-pope. It doesn't yeah. have to mean he's like the antichrist. I don't. I flat out don't think he's antichrist. Maybe yeah, he's an no, 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 no. Yeah, just sit there and suffer with it, man. Well, what if we're saying his name during the creed and it turns out not to be him? Well, I, tons of great saints, like you were texting me uh, during the um, Avignon papacy, we're saying the wrong name. St. Vincent Affairs, you know, was sitting there. And Gregory the Great. Yeah. Uh, Holy Deacon, Pastrasius from the dialogues. I, I gave that whole story yesterday. Yeah. 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 So that, that yeah, that's a, the strength and a weakness of my own, but, but two most important things for people. Be willing to suffer silently and be willing to, I guess, suffer corporately in a way where we're not know-it-alls all the time. We don't need to know exactly what's going on. We, we do for the moment anyway. Yeah have the sacraments so yep. yeah thanks a lot josh that was really thank good. you tim i appreciate it yeah that was really good um, thank you all right parish orphans and retrogrades uh, i'll be back with you you know wednesday at, at the latest thursday i've got another couple interesting shows planned with you for you i hope you enjoyed josh charles stick by uh stick by the faith Enroll if you're a young single dude, in particular in return matchmaking, www.retvrn.us. And everybody else, just uh, wait and see. We have some great shows coming for you in late July, early August. You're going to be excited. Das Volt. Okay.
Uh, you know what? <laughs> Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.